You're listening to Spice Radio with Munkaren and Natasha, and we are speaking to Sareka Bose, a royal expert and lecturer of Victorian literature at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about Queen Elizabeth II, her legacy, and how, you know, today is the big funeral, what this all means. So, Sareka, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for asking me. Now, Queen Elizabeth is having quite the funeral, just looking at the images of the procession. Just how much planning goes into this? Well, First of all, a state funeral like this is very rare, and the last one was for Winston Churchill in 1965. This funeral of the monarch has been planned for many years, and the queen herself had some part in in the planning, such as choosing hymns, choosing that a piper be a part of the ceremony, and um, other details like that. One thing I noticed, Sareka, is it seems like the whole family has been involved in this process. You have Harry and Meghan. There was a bit of controversy. They left as senior royals. And Prince Andrew, of course, he had his own set of controversies altogether. So what is the significance of the fact that you have all the family members together? I think at the end of the day, there is a recognition by the king that who is the head of the family that it is important at the end of the day for a family to try and come together to unite at times of crisis to support each other and i think that um saying that both prince harry and prince andrew are allowed to wear the military uniforms of which they had been stripped earlier just at this moment of great familial sorrow, uh, national sorrow, of course, but allowing them to respect her in ways that are meaningful to them. I think um, extending the hand out to these family members, despite all of the rifts so far for the last few years, I think that shows some generosity and, and recognition that at the end of the day, family ties are very important. Now, Queen Elizabeth, we know that she was somebody who didn't have a lot of political power, but she could have potentially had some influence on certain things. And when we look back, especially at her 70-year reign, was there anything that, you know, she was really helpful on, you know, when it comes to women's rights or anything else? Well, on in terms of uh, certain national relationships, the Queen was very keen to and was able to allow for conversations and meetings with Ireland and to begin to heal some of the many rifts that had occurred over the many decades um, before her reign and once she started her reign. And I think making the move to <clears throat> have talks and to perhaps find ways to reconcile and to heal some of the many deep wounds between the countries, that was a very important accomplishment. But in addition to that, there were other kinds, perhaps somewhat more subtle ways, in which she demonstrated for seven decades how to be a strong female power. Now, there are other kinds of female leadership that we have seen since she became queen, um, uh, leadership within her own country with uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the first woman prime minister, or uh, the many female leaders in the world today, there is the queen as a 
an example there. Um, I think the, the repeated encounter with the familiarity with the figure of the queen always at the head of not only her country, but seemingly um, in, in a central position within world leaders who for decades have shown a great deal of respect for her in their meetings together in the more recent global summits. Uh, when you look at the kinds of tributes we've heard from world leaders, you can see that there was a great deal of respect for her. Why? Because here was a female leader who learned over the years, and very quickly, really, um, that as long as you could be very well informed about every encounter you had, every political issue, social issue, economic issue, when you met with people who were in a position to act, to make a decision, the queen was an informed listener. When asked, she could be an informed and in many ways impartial advisor. I think you build up a particular kind of leadership style that way, perhaps from behind the scenes, but certainly influential in many ways. Does every bit of advice she has ever given come to light? Does every private wish she might have had for certain relationships with other countries come to life, come to light, come to fruition? No. But there were movements that were supported by her, that were um, sometimes encouraged by her, and we have seen a great deal of change. And even though she was, as you say, uh, a constitutional monarch, she did not have any direct power, when you look at the kinds of changes that were made to women's rights, to uh, women's voices, to, to the rights of marginalized people, when you look at the changes in relationships to um, countries that are now part of the Commonwealth, um, when you look at the kinds of changes that occurred while she was on the throne for 70 years, you can see that there was a certain force, a quiet force, that was in many ways very influential in influencing the change. Um, and I think many women have said, when I look at the kinds of interviews you see with people on the street, women have said that she was an example to me that you could continue to be strong, you could continue to um, make changes and differences in what way you could, and that people were were inspired by her to aim for a career, aim for leadership. And the, the style of leadership was described quite well by the Archbishop of Canterbury recently, that it was, it's called servant leadership where you, uh, your goal is to serve, to do the best you can for other people, put service and duty before self. Now, the Queen and the royalty have generated quite a bit of revenue for the UK. So do you think that'll be impacted? And more so, will King Charles be able to fit in those royal boots? Well, I think that um, the challenge that King Charles has is that the world has changed greatly since the queen became queen in 1952. There have been great social and political and economic changes over the decades. One of his big challenges, of course, is that then institutions like the monarchy, which 
really have very deep historical roots in been in many countries there there have been monarchies uh, i think the challenge is that uh, those deep historical roots have been fraying um, and it is the progress of time that is one of his challenges. And another challenge is that people are simply not familiar with the many ways in which he himself has shown servant leadership. If you know about his work since he was in his 20s, you know that he established the Princess Trust which supports um, the the education, the enterprises, entrepreneurship of young people so that they can stand on their own, have independent and thriving lives. Uh, the Princess Trust that was established in the 1970s has helped thousands and thousands of his fellow uh, citizens over the years. The um, advocacy that he has engaged in so fiercely since the early days of his life, um, that is something that was mocked for many years. Uh, it's only fairly recently that his advocacy has caught up with public understanding and public um, recognition of priorities about climate change, organic farming, uh, food pr production, and so on. I think that the fact that he has done works that have not been recognized or, or promoted by the media, um, the stories about those kinds of very important and difficult and challenging projects and initiatives he has taken on, um, those stories are not prominent in the media. You hear about mistakes he's made in his personal life. You hear about um, sometimes a, a comment to the press that is taken out of context, perhaps. Those are the things that seem to be um, worth telling stories about rather than stories about all the people he has helped and his, uh, his, his passion for many of the, the little projects that people around Britain um, and in other countries are um, find help their everyday lives. So I think when that story is made evident to people, when people learn about those stories, perhaps they will feel uh, a little more confident that here is a king who is going to carry on with um, many of the same, if not all of the same duties as the queen. He has demonstrated already that he can start working hard from the second that he becomes king. If you look at the, the kinds of actions that he took within hours of his mother's death, you might ask yourself, could I, grief-stricken by the death of my parents, could I do these things? Could I get up and work and work and work and work, meet people in um, various important state ceremonies, meet people on the street, and be incessantly good-humored while being utterly bereft. And I think that sh there's a certain kind of strength of character that demonstrates as well as a hard-working ethic and a commitment to service.
It's very interesting you've said this and you've mentioned a servant leadership, but at the same time, there was a London news report that detailed the very high cost that a royal family must sustain on an allowance of what, 1,100,000 a year. Now, is that true? Well, um, I think those budgetary details are often um, not quite, they're, they're difficult to confirm. But what I can say is that those high costs include the labor of many employees. You you have probably heard that um, because the king is trying to cut costs, there uh, there is a um, notice that about a hundred staff members at Clarence House are going to lose their jobs. So when you're thinking of costs, a lot of those costs are people's jobs people who are doing all kinds of jobs for the royal family and who make a living from from those costs. Um, there are uh, uh, secretarial and other administrative staff. There are staff who are uh, working in gardens or working in the house, and um, many other types of jobs are dependent on the these expenditures of the royal family. So um, it, it's important to remember that when big numbers are put out, that they, it, they're not numbers that are saying people are drinking from golden goblets and walking around buying diamonds every day. Um, these costs are going towards actual people, uh, people in labor. And you're so very right. And and actually, there are very two very strong polar reactions to this. So one filled with adulation, love, emotion, and the other who think that the relevance of the royal family, especially in today's day and age in 2022, is highly overrated. Yes, and I think that those are the two extremes that we see a lot reported. There's also kind of in between where people are are recognizing that there are some uh, definitely difficult past legacies, legacies from the past, um, which, uh, which are not necessarily connected with the present living human beings, um, but that there are recognitions that there are certain kinds of um, privileges that anyone with privilege would have that are based on um, injustices towards uh, people either in the far past or or in some kind of connection with them. This is the reality for anybody with any privilege, including you and I living in Canada on Indigenous lands that are not our own. So um, people are, 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 a lot of times there's a, a certain kind of association with um, people that we can see are privileged. And if that one says, well, uh, because they are privileged, then they are creating um, certain kinds of or perpetuating certain kinds of injustices, uh, perpetuating some certain kinds of imbalances. Indeed, privilege in all its forms does that. It is its nature. Does the royal family have um, zero role as a result of that? Is it going to be, when you think of all the charities and all of the uh, kinds of initiatives that 
the various members of the royal family engage in, um, is it worth losing all those things? Because um, one has to place for supporting all of those initiatives. There's the uh, there was a report that I read about the the Queen recognizing many very small local charities at a big event that she put on where she invited um, various um, small church charities or local charities and invited uh, members from those charities to one big event where she was able to facilitate meetings between these different bodies and um, which can lead to joint enterprises, greater efficiency and effectiveness in the kind of charitable work that is done. So it might be a good idea to think about um, what would, what sorts of uh, social initiatives could be funded, where that funding would come from, where that support would come from, what would hold everything together in those situations. When you have over 600 charities, you might want to think a little bit about what would be then an ideal step that would support those charities even better. Sarika, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too. Thank you.